Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. Good to be with you on this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent and on this uh, Christmas Eve as well. So Merry Christmas, a blessed New Year to each one of you, and may God's grace, His mercy, and His peace rest on you. Now, there's a very popular Christmas song written by the uh, Christian comedian uh, and former member of the Gaither Vocal Band, Mark Lowry. Uh, it's called, Mary Did You Know? Uh, it's written from the perspective of one who has witnessed all of the great and wonderful things that Jesus did during his earthly life and ministry and asking Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, if she knew all of these things that would take place after her son was born. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? And the song goes on and on. The, the lame, uh, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, uh, the dumb will speak the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know? And I know you know that song. It's uh, been playing on the radio probably since August, right? <laughs> um, maybe not quite that long, right? But uh, what do you think the answer to that question is? Did Mary know? Did Mary know what Jesus would do? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, she knew. She probably didn't know specifics, uh, like the fact that he would walk on water or heal lepers or, or feed 5,000 people with just meager provisions. Uh, but as we'll find out this morning, Mary knew who her son was and what he would do. She knew her son was the Messiah, the, the one who was to save Israel and the world from their sins. Our sermon text for this morning, the fourth Sunday of Advent, this, this Christmas Eve morning, is from Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's a passage of scripture that is, that is fairly familiar to us. Uh, it's traditionally called the Annunciation or the Announcement uh, to Mary. The angel Gabriel is sent from heaven uh, with a message, with an announcement. And as we'll discover this morning, it's a threefold uh, announcement, a threefold message. It's an announcement of grace, an announcement of a new king, an announcement of miracles. Our text is a bit longer this morning, so we're going to divide it up and just read the first half uh, now and come back to the second half in a bit. But if you have your Bibles, I hope you'd open them to Luke chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 26 and uh, reading through verse 33. Would you rise this morning as you are able uh, for the reading of God's word? Again, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, reading in Jesus' name. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning, again, the fourth Sunday of Advent, Christmas Eve, where we get to look upon our Savior who was born for us nearly 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for the Old Testament texts that point forward to uh, your son, Jesus, and what he would do for us, and that Mary, uh, with confidence, would know what Jesus did for her and for the rest of the world as well. We pray that you be with us today as we, again, look at your word. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, there are, there are three different sections to this announcement to Mary. And first, the angel's announcement to Mary is an announcement of grace. That's what verses 26 through 30 are all about. We're told that this announcement came in the sixth month. And this time frame is in relation to another miraculous pregnancy that had occurred. A relative of Mary, Elizabeth, uh, who was, as, as Luke politely put it in chapter 1, uh, very advanced in years. <laughs> Elizabeth had become pregnant. And the child in Elizabeth's womb was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, he would be uh, the one who would get the, the hearts of the people ready for the Messiah. And this, of course, was John the Baptist. And so in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel visits Mary with this wonderful announcement of grace. And uh, the, the internet is full of the pictures of, of what the artists over the years have thought that this announcement would have looked like. Uh, here's a couple of them here as, as I was looking through. And in most of these, Mary is, is very relaxed, looking very pretty, very serene, sitting there. Uh, often she's holding a book and, and the angel is bringing her lilies. And I'm sure there's some uh, semblance there to the book and to the lilies, that sort of thing. Um, there they are again, those lilies as they occur. And there she is with lilies and the book sitting on the shelf. Um, <laughs> this week, I, I read an interesting quote attributed to Martin Luther. Luther noted that angels prefer to come to people as they are fulfilling their calling and discharging their office. The angel appeared to the shepherds as they were watching their flocks, to Gideon, as he was threshing his grain to Samson's mother as she sat in the field. Quite possibly, Mary was doing housework when the angel Gabriel came to her. <laughs> None of those uh, paintings depicted Mary with a mop or a mixing bowl or the wash. <laughs> Maybe they should. But I, I think uh, Luther's quote there gets to the ordinariness of Mary. There was nothing special about her, nothing immaculate. She was an ordinary girl going about ordinary life. The city that she lived in, Nazareth, was only a tiny out-of-the-way place. And in fact, when Luke calls Nazareth a city in verse 26, he's probably putting the most charitable construction on it. Nazareth was so tiny, so out of the way, in fact, that it doesn't even get mentioned in the Old Testament or in the Jewish Talmud. Um, the, the historian Josephus mentions over 200 places as he writes, none of them were Nazareth. Mary's ordinariness, by the way, is what makes this announcement of grace, uh, grace. 
If Mary had been holy on her own, perfect and without sin, she would not have needed God's grace. But because she was, like all of us, a sinner, she was, in fact, uh, in need of God's grace. And so Gabriel's announcement of grace came to this virgin who was betrothed to Joseph. Uh, That's an old-fashioned way of saying they were engaged. They had pledged their troth, their truth, their loyalty to one another. And in first century Israel, engagements are, are, were different than they are today. And we need to be careful not to read our 21st century uh, thoughts on engagement into the situation that Mary and Joseph were in. Today, when a dating couple is engaged, there is nothing that legally binds them, nothing forcing them to get married. Either one of the parties can walk away at any time without any legal repercussions. There might be repercussions of other sorts, but nothing legal. In the culture that Jesus was born in, a a betrothal was a serious, was a very formal affair. These engagements were legal binding contracts that made a, a marriage legal. Once the couple was engaged, again, they were legally married. But it was the custom in Jesus' day for the betrothed husband and wife to live apart for the first year or so. They would be legally married, but uh, again, there would be that period of time before the husband brought his wife to the house. And then when the groom did bring his bride to the house, that's when they would have the party and and celebrate the, the official ceremonies, the marriage feast, that sort of thing. So that's the situation we find Mary and Joseph in when the angel Gabriel comes. And twice in these verses, Gabriel uses the word grace. He gives this twofold greeting of grace. It might have been tough to pick up as we read here. Uh, the ESV translates it as favor. In verse 28, Gabriel greets Mary and calls her favored one, literally meaning graced one. And then in verse 30, the angel tells Mary that she has found favor with God, found grace with God. Favor and grace are, again, the same word. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. And again, we need to be careful not to read too much into these greetings of grace. The Roman Catholic Church has taken these verses and to a greater extent deified Mary. Uh, They say that there was, again, something special or something holy within Mary from the beginning that made the Lord choose her. But in reality, God chose Mary not because she was perfect, not because she was sinless. God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because of his grace and his mercy. Nothing special within Mary. Just like the rest of us, Mary was a recipient of God's grace, not not the source of grace for others. Gabriel simply announced to Mary that God's favor, God's grace, rested upon her. And yet this this greeting troubled Mary. The the appearance of the angel, which usually freaks people out, didn't bother her, it seems. (laughs) But Mary is troubled by the words, by the greeting this announcement of grace. How can I be graced? How can I be favored by the Lord? How can the Lord be with me? Who am I? I am a nobody. The truth is that the Lord God loves to lift up the humble, the lowly, the ordinary, the nobodies from nowhere. He delights in showing his grace to the least of these. This pattern is laid down all throughout Scripture. In Psalm 138, the psalmist says, Though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly. 
In Isaiah, the prophet says, this, thus, thus says the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. But this is the one to whom I will look. I will look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord lifts up the lowly, the humble. And a few months later, when, um, when Mary would go visit her relative Elizabeth, Mary seems to have picked up on this theme of the Lord lifting up the lowly uh, in what's called the Magnificat, her, her song of praise. She, she praises the Lord, she magnifies the Lord, and she says, For the Lord has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He has exalted those, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The truth, that God is a, the truth is that God is a God of grace for the broken. God is a God of mercy for the humble, for the hurting, for the depressed. Are you broken this Christmas Eve? As the burden of your sin began to weigh you down, have you come to grips with your own failures, your own faults, your own shortcomings? Have you reached the end of yourself? If you have, the Lord's grace is for you. And this grace comes to you because of Jesus Christ. He came born as a baby, not just to live a good life and to provide us with an example to follow. He came to give his life in exchange for you. He died on the cross in your place and on your behalf to bring you to God's grace and mercy. And if you have never received God's love, his forgiveness, His grace, His mercy. Today is a good day to do that. Christmas is all the time about receiving gifts, right? So this Christmas, receive the gift of God's grace for yourself. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Return to Him as Lord. He is gracious and He desires you to come to Him. Amen? Gabriel's announcement was an announcement of grace. It was also the announcement of a new king. And as Gabriel announced this, this new king, he offered some, some not-so-shocking news. In verse 21, or 31, he told Mary, "'You will conceive in your womb a son.'" And if we're being honest, there's not a whole lot that's too extremely shocking there. It's kind of how things are done. And when you're pregnant, having a boy is a 50-50 shot. And so the angel also said, you shall call his name Jesus. And again, in Jesus' day, uh, there were actually a lot of baby boys who were born who were called Jesus. So, so far, all of this would have seemed very, maybe normal, not worthy of an angelic message, not worthy of Gabriel leaving the throne room of God to play errand boy. But then things get interesting. Let me reread verses 32 and 33 again, and, and there are some not-so-normal things here that Gabriel announces to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. First, Gabriel says that Mary's son will be great. 
Now, the greatness of Mary's son wasn't just an adjective that described uh, how he was going to be at something, a great carpenter, a great leader, a great basketball player. No, uh, great describes Jesus' character and his nature. He is great. The word great defines him. There aren't many people throughout history that we throw the title of great to. Alexander the Great comes to mind, or or Alfred the Great of of England from about the uh, 1000s, he comes to mind. But again, the designation of great isn't one that we throw lightly around. Jesus will be, he always was, he always is, and always will be great. And Gabriel also says that Mary's son will be called Son of the Most High. Mary's son will be the son of God. And now there, there is a sense, right, in, in which we are all children of God. Humanity's created in his image. Believers, we have been adopted into God's family. We are his children, right? However, as Gabriel announces to Mary that this new king will be called the son of God, he's emphasizing a completely different idea. It's the idea that Jesus captures for us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the same idea that we confess this morning in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, begotten of his father before all worlds. And the term begotten doesn't mean created or or procreated or or produced. The Greek word begotten is monogenes, and it means the only one of its kind, the unique in its class. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, sharing the same divine nature as God. He is God. Mary's son, Gabriel says, would be God's son, God incarnate, God in human flesh. We're going to talk more about that later on because, like you, Mary had some questions for Gabriel about that, how that would work. Uh, So there's a third not-so-normal announcement that Gabriel gives and that this baby who was to be born would, would be given the throne of his father David and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and of his kingdom there would be no end. Mary's son, Gabriel announced, would inherit David's forever kingdom. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people were looking for their Messiah, their king, to come and to deliver them from their their national and political overlords. They were looking for a coming king and a general who would defeat Rome and would reinstate Israel on a national and political scene. And when you read some of the Old Testament prophecies, it's, it's easy to understand why. This morning... Art read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that chapter, Nathan the prophet is given a message to tell, and the recipient is King David. And the Lord says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And what great news, right? If you were King David, God has promised to you that your kingdom will never end. The kingdom you've worked so hard to establish, the kingdom that you've... um, put in place by so many battles and and blood shed, all of that, that kingdom will endure forever. And if I were in David's shoes, I don't think I could think of a greater thing, a greater promise that I would like to hear, to know that your kingdom, your throne, would endure forever. But as you go through history, you find out that only two generations after God told David that his kingdom would endure forever, it looked as if God had reneged on his promise. 
There was a civil war that split David's kingdom into two, Israel and, and Judah. And uh, 50 years later, again, it seemed like God's promise uh, was, was gone and things got worse from there. In the course of history, both Israel and Judah were defeated in military battle and were carried off into exile. Both times, the kings of Israel and kings of Judah were deposed and puppet governors were put in place. It seems like God's promise to David, his word, had failed. And so the people began to look for a new king who would deliver them from their political enemies and to restore the kingdom of David. So when Mary comes and announces, I'm sorry, when Gabriel comes and announces to Mary that her son would be given the throne of her fa- his father David, Mary probably would have thought of the same promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. God was finally bringing about his promise to restore the kingdom. But what the Messiah was believed to do and what he actually did were two completely different matters. Instead of delivering Israel and Judah from her political enemies, Jesus delivered the world from her spiritual enemies. Because it was on the cross, in the death of Jesus, that our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, were defeated. On the cross, Jesus suffered and bled and died in your place and on your behalf. On the cross, Jesus won the victory. Sin had been completely paid for. But yet, on on this side of eternity, we, we still battle our spiritual enemies, don't we? We still struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So how could Jesus have won the victory, but yet left us to fight all these battles against our spiritual enemies? Let me use this as an example the, uh, the last battle of the Civil War was fought in a place in Texas called Palmito Ranch. The war had been over for more than a month. General Lee had already surrendered to General Grant. Uh, the treaty was signed. The war was over. But yet in Texas, there, these two sides were still fighting these little skirmishes, these little mop-up battles, even though the war was over. It's like that with us spiritually. The war is over. Jesus has won the victory. Satan is defeated. But yet until Jesus returns, we still fight these little skirmishes, these mop-up battles in our soul. And so when you, when you battle temptation to sin, fight it. Don't just give in. God has given you his spirit, his word. He is standing beside you in the battle, enabling you to fight temptation. It's only at Jesus' second advent, his second coming, when he will come back to rule and to reign for all eternity that those promises in 2 Samuel 7 and uh, the promises of Gabriel here in Luke chapter 1 will find their ultimate fulfillment. Only in eternity will our spiritual enemy be finally finished off. Then Jesus will rule and reign forever and ever. And to that we say, Amen, Maranatha, come Lord. There's a third announcement, though, that we need to get to this morning um, that Gabriel gives to Mary. It's found in verses 34 through 38, and it's an, an announcement of miracles. Look at these verses here if you still have your Bible open. Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month of her who is called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Did you catch Mary's question? (laughs) She asked, How could this be? And I don't know that we necessarily need to read doubt into Mary's question. I think Mary was simply asking for clarification. She, she wonders how she will be able to have a son, and for that matter, a son who is a king. Yes, she's engaged, but she's not living with her husband, and her husband isn't the prince. Her husband is the town carpenter. They live in the little redneck town of Nazareth, not the palace in Jerusalem. And so it would have been only natural for her to ask, how are these things to be? How will my son grow up to be the king? And Gabriel answers her with a a mystery, with a, a miracle that we really can't fully explain. He says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This son, Gabriel says, this son would not be Joseph's son. This son, the Messiah, would be the Son of God. And Gabriel explains to Mary how this would take place. It would take place by God's creative power working in Mary's body. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. When we think of the the creation account found in in Genesis, we typically forget, at least I do anyway, that that the Holy Spirit was present and active in creation. We know, of course, God the Father was there creating. We know from passages like John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus was the word through whom all things were made. But often we forget that the Holy Spirit was there and was active in creation. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All three persons of the, of the triune Godhead were present and active in creation. And apparently the Holy Spirit's creative power wasn't just limited to those first seven days of creation. As the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, he created within her womb the flesh that Jesus entered into. As God, just as God spoke stars into existence, he spoke new flesh into Mary's womb. Somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit created a body, a little tiny zygote for Jesus to dwell in. And even if we can't fully explain this mystery, we believe it, don't we? The virgin birth is, is one of the foundational doctrines for us as Christians. And the reason this belief is so important is because it, it relates to our redemption. Jesus Christ is fully God, yet at the same time, fully man. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the penalty for our sins, a penalty which we as fallen sinners could never have paid. We cannot atone for our own. And as fully human, Jesus could be our adequate representative and our substitutionary sacrifice. If Jesus is not fully God, his death on the cross then is just one out of the hundreds of thousands of crucifixions that happened. And if Jesus is not one of us, fully human, He could not be our representative and our sacrifice before God. And so that's why the the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit is so vital and important for us today. If Jesus isn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he's not truly God's son. And if he isn't conceived in a woman and born of her, then he's not truly human. (laughs) Again, it's it's a mystery uh, that we cannot explain or, or solve. It transcends human understanding. I guess that's why it's called a miracle, isn't it? 
And so Gabriel offers Mary some, some proof of this miracle. In verse 36, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you need some proof of this, proof that God is powerful, proof that God can work miracles, just take a look at your relative Elizabeth. Her and her husband are old, but yet God has given them a child. And Gabriel says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. An old lady who's well beyond childbearing years is pregnant. That's a miracle. A young girl who's still a virgin getting pregnant by the creative power of the Holy Spirit. That's also a miracle. Nothing is impossible with God. God was doing everything necessary to orchestrate the birth of his son and the redemption of the world. So what was the the result of, of Gabriel's words to Mary? Verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me according to your word. Mary believed in Gabriel's message. Mary was obedient to the Lord. And so to answer Mark Lowry's question that we started off with, uh, the this title for the sermon, Mary, did you know? <laughs> yes, Mary knew. Mary knew and Mary believed. What about you? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Have you received his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his love? If you haven't, Christmas is the perfect time to receive those gifts. Jesus Christ, God, came to be born in human flesh, born to redeem you from your sin. He is waiting for you, and he wants to give you that gift of forgiveness. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. We thank you for accomplishing the purpose um, for which you sent him, his his death on the cross, our our justification, and we thank you for his resurrection from the dead and for the, the new life that he gives to us. And Father, again, I pray that if those, there are those here who do not know you, have not confessed their sins, have not repented of their sins, not found mercy and grace and forgiveness in Jesus, that today would be the day that they would receive that gift. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.